Hey, you know how there are some jobs that are just so large that they end up never getting done because you never get around to doing them? At our place, there's jobs like cleaning out the shed or we've got all these boxes in the cupboards full of old family photos from holidays that really do need to go into albums sometime. But they are jobs that are so big and daunting that they, we almost don't know where to start and so we never do. You've got jobs like that. For me, one of those sorts of so big that you never get around to doing them type of jobs has been preaching through the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Now, I've been here in Dubbo 22 years, which of course means I came here when I was eight years old. But in that whole time, I've never once preached right through the book of Isaiah because, quite frankly, it scares me a little bit. We've got 66 chapters of some of the most far-reaching, difficult-to-follow ideas of the Bible. And so, to be perfectly honest, I've tended to avoid it. All of that is about to change. Uh, this year, I've run out of excuses, and so my preaching project for the year is going to be working our way right through the entire book of Isaiah. We're not going to do it in one hit. We're going to tackle it in four instalments throughout the year. But all up, we're going to be spending about 24 Sundays this year looking at Isaiah. That is way more than, than I've ever spent on any single book. But that is a measure of the sort of book that Isaiah is. Isaiah is extraordinary. This is a book where more or less God invites us into his headquarters and he stretches out before us his grand plan for the entire world. And as he stretches out the plan for us, he points out to us where this life is heading and how it is that we can make the most of this life that he has given us. Isaiah is the sort of book that, put simply, it will help us to not waste our lives. And there's no better place to see that than in this very first chapter, today's passage. Because the way chapter 1 functions is that it forms a bit of an overture to the rest of the book. You know how, like in music, you sometimes get an overture right at the beginning of the music? I think it's called an overture, where you get snippets of the sort of tunes that are going to come up later on in the music, uh, the sort of tunes that are going to get developed in more detail later on down the piece. Well, chapter 1 is a bit like an overture. It introduces us to some of the key ideas in Isaiah that are eventually going to get picked up and developed in much more detail down the track within the book. This morning, let me pick out just three of these ideas that we are introduced to in the first chapter. The first idea being that Isaiah is going to introduce us to a very, very big plan of God's. Verse 1. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz and Zedekiah, kings of Judah. Now, please notice that verse 1 begins by saying that this is the vision, singular it's not the visions that Isaiah receives, plural. This is alerting us to the fact that, that everything that now follows, even all the differences that we might notice between chapters and sections, they actually all add together to make one big vision. What we're going to be reading into is one massive integrated plan, a 1,292-verse-long vision. 
In fact, it's a vision that's just not long in length. Uh, Verse 1 tells us it's long in time span. This is a vision that was received by Isaiah during the reign of four different kings. As we'll discover in chapter 6, it starts at the end of Uzziah's reign, goes all the way through Jotham's 16-year reign, all the way through Ahaz's 16-year reign, well into Hezekiah's 29-year reign. Starting to get a feel for the, just the sheer size of what we're going to be getting into. Uh, this is a 66-chapter-long vision received over the course of 60 years. You can't blame me for putting it off a little bit. Here's the thing, though. The point of this vision being so big in size is that it's setting us up to realise that it needs to be big in size so as to match the bigness of the ideas, so as to match the bigness of the scope for the things that we're going to see. Because even though verse 1 tells us that it's a vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem, verse 2 tells us the, the effect of the vision is not confined to Judah and Jerusalem. This is a vision that's going to have ramifications for all the earth. Verse 2. Hear, O heavens, hear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. These are stirring words that summon all of creation to pay attention because all of creation is going to be affected by this. There is not a person in this room who is unaffected by what God is going to go on and say in the book of Isaiah. There is not a person you know in this world who is not going to be unaffected by God's plan as outlined in this book. Whether you like the plan or not, whether you believe the plan or not, whether you're interested in the plan or not, you will be affected by it. And so right at the beginning of this overture to the book, the heavens and the earth are summoned to listen to what God has to say to them because all the heavens and earth are going to be affected by what God has to say. In fact, if you don't mind me spoiling the ending, by the time we get to chapter 66, the heavens and the earth are going to be completely transformed by what God is going to go on and say. This is a big plan. Tragically, though, at least here at the start, it's a plan that's going to involve an aspect of punishment to it. Verse 2 again. Hear, O heavens, listen, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows his master, the the donkey his owner's manger, but, but Israel doesn't know. My people don't understand. In those verses, uh, God refers to Israel as his child and and as his people. That's the sort of language that is hearkening back to events way before Isaiah's time. It's hearkening back to events way back into the book of Genesis where God promised Abraham that Abraham's descendants would be his own special children, would be his own special people, and that through Abraham's descendants, God would re-bless the world. The world was under the curse of God because of sin, but God graciously promised that through Abraham's descendants, he would bring blessing back into the world. Trouble is, by the time you get to Isaiah's time, Abraham's descendants, who are now called Israel, Abraham's descendants are hopeless, hopelessly lost in sin. Despite everything that God has done for them, despite the way God has loved them and nurtured them, they have completely lost the plot. And most of this morning's chapter, you would have noticed, is taken up in explaining the extent to which they have lost the plot. 
Verse 4 describes Judah as evildoers given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. Verse 5 describes that they persist in rebellion. To make things worse, they seem to be ignoring even the warnings that God's been sending them. In verses 7 to 9, we we hear about burnt cities and devastated countryside. Their capital city, Zion, which is another name for Jerusalem. Their capital city is under siege and in ruins. It's all a reference to the invasion of Judah by Assyria, which happened around the time of those four kings mentioned there in verse 1. But Isaiah wants Judah to see that behind that invasion was God disciplining them for their sinfulness. He's trying to get them to wake up to themselves and bring them back to their senses, but they just won't learn. In verse 9 to 15, God talks about how they're just going through the actions of empty worship. It's not from their heart. God is sick of their hypocrisy. Verse 15, when you spread out your hands in prayer, I'll I'll hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I won't listen. Your hands are full of blood. See, the offence that God is feeling, the hands that they're lifting in worship is actually hands that that are hands full of violence. It's equivalent of us coming here and, and singing songs with our lips in our mouths and yet we go out during the week and we use our lips in our mouths for, for outbursts of anger and lies and obscenity. Please tell me there's no one here that's stupid to do that because God is disgusted by it. Over in verses 21 and 22, God laments that they used to be faithful. Jerusalem used to be full of justice and righteousness, but now it's full of corruption and dishonesty. In verse 23, he singles out the rulers of Judah. He describes them as rebels and thieves. These are, these are people who love to be bribed and they love getting the under-the-table under payments so that, sim, so that justice is simply being sold off to the highest bidder. All in all, a lot of this chapter is a scathing criticism by God as he piles up criticism upon criticism and points out to Judah that they're crazy if they think that they're going to keep getting away with this. Verse 28 is perhaps the best summary of all for where all this is heading. Verse 28. Rebels and sinners will both be broken. And for those who forsake the, and those who forsake the Lord will perish. Now, friends, at this point, God's big plan concerning Judah and Jerusalem, it doesn't sound all that positive. A very big aspect of the plan is to punish the sinner and the rebel. But please don't misunderstand the tone of all this. Uh, God doesn't enjoy beating up on Judah like this. Remember back up in verse 2, he used the imagery of a rebellious child breaking the heart of their parents. This is a heart-wrenching thing for God to have to do. He's not looking for excuses to be angry with them. If anything, he's looking for reasons not to be angry with them. He loves his people. And so what you notice is that amongst all these verses about sin and punishment, at a couple of really key moments in the text, God's love and his mercy just break through out of the chapter. As he explains that as well as a plan to punish, he also has a plan to purify. Look, for example, at verse 18. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. 
Now, friends, that verse is the equivalent of a blinding shaft of sunshine bursting through massive black storm clouds. Ever since verse 2, it's been doom and gloom and sin and punishment. And yet at the very point when you're expecting the full force of God's judgment to be handed down, suddenly an unbelievable offer of mercy is handed down. They can have their sin washed away. They can become as, as white as snow. Who would not want this? Imagine every single wrong thing you've done. Every mistake you've ever made before God, every selfish thought, every dishonest act, every foolish word, every sinful decision, gone. Every single one of them cleansed away. Fresh start with God. It's an astonishing offer for God to put on the table. And for those who accept this offer, they will take their place in a new people of God. Look, At verse 25, for example, where God now goes on to describe how a new purified people are going to be left once those in Judah who don't accept this offer, after those who don't accept the offer, are purged away. Verse 25. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your impurities. I will restore your judges as in days of old, your counsellors as at the beginning. Afterward, you will be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion, remember that's Jerusalem, will be redeemed with justice, her penitent ones with righteousness. They're very significant statements. The penitent ones will be redeemed with righteousness. In other words, the ones who are sorry for their sins, the ones who do want to be rid of their sins, the ones who are repentant will be rescued through God's goodness. Friends, you're starting to see how all this is coming together into a very grand plan of God's. Part of God's plan is to punish Judah for her sin. They have rejected him as their God. They have utterly failed as his people. And so the holy God's perfect sense of justice demands that sin and rebellion be punished, rightly so. But within that plan, because of his love, God is also making the stunning offer to purify those in Judah who want to be. For those who are penitent, for those who are sorry and remorseful concerning their sins, for those who want to have their sin washed clean, God will. And from them, a new purified people of righteousness will emerge in whom all sin has been purged away. Friends, this is an ambitious plan, especially so, remember, because this is a plan that God has summoned all creation to pay attention to because it's not just Judah but all the earth that's going to somehow experience the ramifications of this plan. A plan to punish, yes, but a plan to purify and a plan that's going to affect all of creation. And, friends, this is exactly the plan that Jesus Christ self-consciously fulfilled when he came to this world. So you come across with me to now Luke chapter 4 in the New Testament. Luke chapter 4. I'd like to read to you the very first words that Luke records about Jesus Christ's public ministry. Luke chapter 4. And over December and January, we've been reading through the early years of Jesus. 
And we've been reading, if you've been here, you realise we've been reading all about the things that happened about Jesus before he was born and some of the things that happened to Jesus as a baby and as a young child. And and last week, Wayne took us right up to Jesus' baptism in chapter 3. Here now, listen to the very first thing that Luke records about when Jesus goes public after his baptism. Immediately after his baptism, there's some private time in the wilderness where he gets tempted. But here's the very first thing that happens when Jesus goes public. Chapter 4, verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee, that is from the temptations. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up and read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, the recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue was fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Do you reckon you could have heard a pin drop in that synagogue when Jesus said that? Here is a reading from Isaiah. It's from chapter 61. We'll get to that later on in the year. But here is an excerpt from God's big plan. Remember, the single unified big plan, the plan that's going to involve punishment of the rebels, uh, purification of the repentant. And Jesus effectively says, I'm here to do that. I'm here to fulfill that. You know those plans concerning Judah and Jerusalem? I'm at the centre of those plans. I'm at the centre of those plans that God has put in place to transform the very heavens and the earth. I am at the centre of it all. They are very big words. Bold claim. But can you understand why Isaiah is such an important book, therefore? Can you start to see why Isaiah is, in fact, sometimes called the fifth gospel? It's because within the gospels, Isaiah is the drumbeat to which Jesus marches. Almost more than any other Old Testament book, it is Isaiah which sets out the plan. It's Isaiah that provides the agenda around which Jesus goes about deliberately living, deliberately shaping his life and his mission to what we read in Isaiah. It's a mission that will eventually lead to the cross where all the things that we've even just seen this morning in the overture to the book, at the cross, all those things will actually be fulfilled. As through his death and resurrection, Jesus does bring punishment and purging to Israel in having crucified their Messiah, their Christ. God rejects them once and for all. But through his death and resurrection, he also brings purity to those 
who are repentant. And that offer of sins, you know, that offer of sins being turned as white as snow in Christ, that really does reverberate throughout the whole creation as that offer to have our sins forgiven reaches all around the world and all over history to reach even us here in Dubbo, in Australia, in 2012. As Jesus fulfills the plans of God, as outlined in the book of Isaiah, in ways that I suspect even Isaiah himself could not even have imagined. Friends, I hope that you're going to enjoy spending time in Isaiah this year. It is a terrific book. At the very least, Isaiah is going to give us the privilege of better understanding Jesus Christ. Because the more we get into God's plan as described in Isaiah, the more we're going to be able to see why Jesus specifically does things and says things. The more we get into God's plan in Isaiah, effectively the more we're going to get inside Jesus' head. And that will put us on holy ground indeed. But even here, even in the general things that we've noticed in the opening notes of this overture to the book, Even here there's encouragement. I mean, since Isaiah sets out God's plans for all the earth and since Jesus comes and fulfills that plan, therefore to be a follower of Jesus puts you at the centre of those plans. To be a follower of Jesus actually puts us at the very centre of God's actions in the world. Look, I know there are times when being a Christian can seem pretty pretty small and dull and I know there are times when being a Christian can actually make you feel the odd one out but from God's perspective the followers of Jesus are actually where all the action is because to be with Jesus will have us at the heart of God's purposes and plans for this world to be with Jesus will put us at the very nucleus of where this life is heading for it'll put us at the very center of what all this life is about or to put it another way to not be one of Jesus' people, to not be daily learning from Jesus, to not be daily relying on Jesus, to not be obeying Jesus, to not be doing any of that would actually put us at odds, would make us be moving against the grain of God's purposes. Because if Jesus is at the centre of God's plans, what a waste of a life to not have Jesus also at the centre of ours. And I suspect that's probably a good thing to think through, especially this time of year. You know, because here we are, it's the start of the year, we're beginning to fill up our diaries. Uh, All the daily routines are starting to be formed. Well, what are the main things around which you are going to shape 2012? What are the things that you're going to put in first in your diaries? What are you going to fill up your to-do list with on the fridge? What's going to get your best efforts this year. I think today's passage helps us to see that it's the stuff to do with Jesus that needs to go in first. Because Isaiah chapter 1 introduces us, even in just general ways, to God's big plan for this world. It's a plan to punish rebels. It's a plan to purify the repentant. It's a plan which God summons all creation to pay attention to because all creation is going to feel the ramifications of this. And it is a plan fulfilled in Christ. And brothers and sisters, if we are at all interested in living our life in the same direction as God, 
I think our plans need to centre on Christ as well. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the book of Isaiah. Thank you for your word and its grandeur. Uh, Father, thank you that in your mercy, you have even within your plans given scope to purify those of us who want to just be rid of sin. Father, we thank you that Jesus fulfills all your promises and all your purposes and all your plans. And we thank you that because of Jesus, even us, hundreds of years after Isaiah was written, on the other side of the world, we are able to feel the comfort of your purposes and plans as described in this chapter. Thank you that because of Jesus, our sins, though scarlet, have been made as white as snow. And Lord, we'd like to ask of you, please, that you would help us and that we'd be good at helping each other to make 2012 a year that counts, that we would strive at having your precious son at the centre of our plans, as he is indeed at the centre of yours. It is in his name we pray and ask this, for his honour. Amen.